I am thrilled at today's guest, Neil Katiel. To call Neil a lawyer, he's like calling Michael Jordan a basketball player. Um, his resume is just incredibly uh, impressive. He was, of course, the during the Obama administration, served as acting solicitor general. Um, he is a partner in Hogan Lovells and and and, and Paul. He's a Patricia Sanders professor of national security law at Georgetown University Law Center. He has argued more cases in front of the Supreme Court, 50 and counting, than any other minority in history. Um, he is a frequent contributor to MSNBC, the New York Times, Washington Post. He's a GQ man of the year. I was particularly impressed with that one. And um, he's a best-selling author. And you and I also have a, something in common. We both had cameos on Billions. I was very, very, very impressed to hear that. How did that happen? Um, well, uh, you know, they had asked me to help them a little bit with um, some uh, plot line um, that uh, ultimately materialized involving the Solicitor General. And uh, then at some point, Brian Koppelman called and said, hey, would you want to be in this? And I said, hell yes. Um, and initially the deal was a day of filming in New York. And then in the tragedy that happened to Damian Lewis and his wife passing away, um, you know, filming moved to London where he was with his kids and that was during lockdown. So I had to be there for about eight days. Wow. Um, and uh, it was quite something. Um, but, uh, but it was an extraordinary experience. Yeah. Um, everyone involved with that show is just brilliant and creative and awesome. Yeah. Brian's a friend of mine. I had, I had the privilege of doing cameo. It was one of the best things I ever did. So interesting times we live in. Um, you, you're a busy guy these days because what's going on in your mind is very, very important to so many people. First of all, just from 10,000 feet up as a guy that has practiced law who's, who's, who's been in front of the Supreme Court and has dedicated his life to the law you couldn't have made this stuff up basically this we are living in to say uncharted territory is an understatement yeah I think that's right I mean I do think our founders did anticipate um uh, and for all their faults and criticisms, I think they were really good at seeing around corners and understanding how to set up a structure of government that is going to work as best as a government can. It's still, in the end, as Madison said, a parchment barrier. It's just paper. It can be blown off with enough um, you know, uh, bad faith by enough actors. But what they did was basically divide power both horizontally and vertically because they feared demagogues, just like um, the one that we have that we're dealing with now. And so um, in a way that's unanticipated, in a way it's anticipated, but in a way it's also unanticipated. I mean, you know, I'm the kid of immigrants. My parents came here because they basically trusted the American system. They basically trusted the good faith of po political leaders. And that had been my experience. I mean, look, I disagree with some of them or not, like George Bush or something, but I don't think that they were out to, you know, you know basically set a match to half the country and to inflame passions the way that Donald Trump has. And so it's heartbreaking to see on the one hand, on the other, it is reaffirming to see the rule of law finally coming back a bit. Yeah, I, it's interesting. I, I said this last week and I feel it, there's two ways of looking at this. You can look at this as a glum situation and a, and a, 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 a dirty mark on our history. But as you just touched on, I celebrate where we are, that we have a system, that we have a legislative branch that can hold hearings and special committees, and that, that we can actually have a justice department that can bring indictments against the ex-president and a, a system of law that will try him in in, in a part of an impartial court. It's, it is incredible. It is incredible, that system that has been set up, the Madisonian democracy, how it does work. So I in a strange way, as much as it's horrible having this despot, you know, 
trying to light a flame to our government and to our democracy. I celebrate where we are today. Yeah, it's a ridiculous test of our democracy. We shouldn't be in this position. We should be well past this by now, but we're not. And so let's ace the test. Um, and, uh, you know, I think one of the things that's been frustrating for many Americans, including myself, is just how long it's taken. Yeah. I mean, even just January 6th now was years and years ago. And, you know, yet we're only now seeing the indictments. And so that delay is really frustrating, particularly when you know that Donald Trump is going to use everything in his book to try and delay things even further. Yeah, you talked. You you had a good laugh at his his lawyer's latest uh, uh, paré to get push it back to twenty twenty six, and you said the chances of that happening are basically nil and nil. Yeah, that all unfolded while I was actually on air. I can't remember which show I was on, but uh, but it you know the lawyer Donald Trump's lawyers said twenty twenty six is when they would like to be tried for the January 6th crimes in the federal case. And um, I think I said I'd eat my hat if uh, that was granted. Um, It's just so preposterous and ridiculous and just goes to show that Trump is not actually serious about about, uh, his innocence. If he were, like Donnie, if you or I were accused of launching a coup and trying to subvert the democratic process and throw out the popular vote, we would like demand a trial. We'd want to actually proclaim our innocence. We want that legal system to be there, particularly when the legal system is so stacked in, in your favor as a criminal defendant, because, you know, in the way our system works, again, part of our founders, you know, that uh, you, the prosecution has to prove that Donald Trump did it beyond a reasonable doubt, the highest standard in the law. So it's much higher than like 50%. And you have to prove it to all 12 jurors. If any one juror disagrees, Donald Trump cannot be convicted. So that's a really high burden. And yet still, Donald Trump is so afraid to show up in court and present his case. Let's talk about the January 6th case. And a couple of law of your colleagues came out last week that the 14th Amendment already is disqualifying as far as him running for office again uh, based on seditious conspiracy. Give me your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I think that's right. And so the the argument by uh, William Baud and Michael Stokes Paulson, who are two quite conservative law professors, members Federalist of the Federalist Society. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. And, um, but, um, uh, you know, also respected scholars, uh, what they said is you go back and look to what the 14th Amendment Section 3 was about. This was passed right after the Civil War, and it barred insurrectionists from holding public office. And there could be a removal of that bar by a two-thirds vote in the Congress, but that's what it took. And what this Law Review article says is that uh, that uh, amendment applies to today. It applies to Donald Trump and that you don't need special legislation by Congress or anything to empower it. It's, it's what we call self-executing. You don't need a law of Congress to enforce it. And so the way in which this is going to unfold, and I'm pretty sure this is going to happen, is that some secretaries of state in various states will refuse to put Donald Trump on the ballot. Trump will then file a lawsuit against them if he can manage to find a lawyer who will represent him, which is, you know, a big if, but if he can, uh, then uh, and then that will go to court and that will be the basis to test whether or not he's eligible to serve. And notably, Donnie, this doesn't require the criminal prosecutions in Georgia or in Washington, D.C. for January 6th. This is its own uh, separate set of proceedings. 
So let's handicap January 6th. And I know you don't love to do this, and so what's going to happen? But let's play this out. It looks like that trial is going to happen before the election. Let's say he's found guilty. What does that look like at that point? So if he's found guilty in either the state or federal, it does not mean that he goes to jail right away. There's something called bail pending appeal, which is the idea that you're out free until you've exhausted your appeals. And my sense is that's likely to be what will happen to Donald Trump. So we're not talking any sort of incarceration, um, you know, right away. It would take appeals. I do think, you know, at this point, I have not seen a viable Donald Trump defense to these charges. Mm -hmm. um, he is now out there saying that he is absolutely immune from any sort of legal process based on the work of someone he calls a esteemed constitutional scholar. Um, and, you know, no, no disrespect to that person, but it is a thoroughly implausible argument that Donald Trump has absolute immunity for what happened on January 6th. That would be a crazy view. That would be like, that would allow Joe Biden next November to throw out the popular vote and install himself for a second term yes. and then say, hey, I'm absolutely immune. Come on, give me a break. That's of course not the way. I mean, it may be the Soviet constitution, but it's yeah. not the American one. Um, are you, you mentioned, it's interesting, you, you immigrated here from uh, India. As somebody who has get parents came to this country uh, because of everything we are and the freedoms, does it astound you just as a human, forget in your professional capacity, that still 40% of this country puts a thumbs up for Trump? And that that, that just what I, I ask every one of my guests, and we, my guests come from all walks of like, explain that. What What is it in your view as somebody, as, as just as, as somebody who is, as I said, just a person that allows people to just continually give him a pass and go, he's my guy. What What is that? Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't know that it's 40%. I think it's or probably- 33 or 34. Yeah, but, yeah, right. But it is lower. And I do think, you know, there are a lot of Americans who are deeply suffering. And you've got this con man out there who is um, saying- you know, I will solve your problems. I am like you, even though the you know billionaire born with a silver spoon in his mouth yeah. is nothing like them. But he is willing to do anything, to say anything, just to get these votes, just to win. Um, and uh, he doesn't actually care about even getting the votes. He just cares about winning. winning right. And, um, you know, I do think sometimes there's a little bit of complacency among the American public. And that's why, you know, I, I do think sometimes immigrants love this country more than people who are born here because they've seen what it's like somewhere else when you have these fascistic impulses. And uh, so, you know, deeply woven into my story, into everything I'm about is just uh, the recognition of how bad it is in other places. And, um, and I get how Americans today with economic dislocation and, you know, outsourcing and other things, they feel like economically, particularly, it's not working for them. And so they look anywhere for help because if the system's broken, well, you might as well just totally trash the system and start again. And that's what Donald Trump has been selling. And in a way, I do think that he would trash the system and start it again. I, I really do worry that if he were in power, that he would... Um, you know, basically install an autocracy. You know, to that point, I would love the Democrats to start to do as a uh, uh, communication tactic. 
Everybody talks about, oh, democracy is, is you know, on the precipice and he would destroy democracy. To start to put some meat on that bone, what would that look like? I gave an 100%. example last week on Morning Joe saying that he's, of course, basically he said what he would do. And one of the smaller things, or we'll have the FCC report to him and anything on TV he doesn't like, somehow he would regulate out of business and little things like that. Shows would disappear and we need to start saying, okay, this is what it would look like. This is right. really what American life would be. Right, or lock her up, right? Yeah. I mean, what he would do is take the Justice Department and say, and he's expressed about this, and go after his enemies. Um, and, you know, which is ironic because it's what he's accusing the Justice Department today of, which is totally wrong. But um, but he would do it. And the idea that the Justice Department would be both a sword to go after your enemies and a shield, um, which he's done already for the la- in his first term, uh, which is to block uh, prosecutions because because on the basis of politics of your friends, um, you know, pardon your friends, you know, like Dinesh D'Souza and stuff. I mean, this is not the way any normal president has ever behaved in our history. I want to shift gears for a second. I just was reading a bunch of interviews that you gave and about your craft, about actually uh, pleading a case in, in front of the Supreme Court and some of the th- lessons that you learned. And one that I found fascinating was you were so nervous before your first case that you hired an acting coach. And yeah. he gave you this tip about when you're, imagine that you're, he, he held your hand and said, imagine every time you're you're presenting in front of the court, you're actually holding hands as you're talking to them. I found that fascinating. Yeah, so my very first case was a massive one. It was Guantanamo sure. and whether President Bush's military tribunals there, which could put people to death, were constitutional and whether they violated the Geneva Conventions. And nobody thought we could win this case. We lost it in the Court of Appeals, you know, every which way. And John Roberts was on the panel on the Court of Appeals and then was nominated to be on the Supreme Court three days after the decision. Um, So I am terrified about this argument. I tried to give it away to people like Ken Starr um, and uh, couldn't give it away. So uh, I ultimately did it. I was facing President Bush's Solicitor General. It was his 35th Supreme Court argument. It was my first. Um, And so I was very nervous, um, as you said. And I did, um, one of my co-counsel lawyers introduced me to Joshua Carton, an acting coach. And Josh did that. He said, you know, basically practice your argument holding my hand. And that really helped because what it made me understand was that oral argument is about communication. It's about interaction. And persuasion is not like giving a speech. It's listening to the other person, trying to get in their head and try and figure out what will move them. And that technique of holding one's hand is a big part of it. Um, And so I now teach that uh, to my students. Um, And it's something I use in every argument. I just gave my 50th Supreme Court argument and I'm thinking the same thing. I'm trying to hold their hand. And sometimes it's hard, you know, this first argument of Guantanamo, I was so worried Justice Scalia uh, was gonna come after me uh, and attack me, and he did. He basically said, Americans will die as a result of what you're right, saying right. and stuff like that. Um, but if you can mentally make the shift to understand that you're in a common enterprise together um, and that it's not personal and it's a search for truth, um, uh, I think you can get better results. Another thing you did early on when your kids were a little bit younger, you would explain the cases to them because that was your way of really breaking it down and simplifying it to its to its ultimate essence. 
Yeah. So, I mean, at that, my first argument, my kids were two, four and six. Um, and the night before I went and explained the argument to them uh, as best I could. Um, and I've done that for every one of my 50 arguments. And it's obviously different now that they're grown up. But, you know, I think that uh, technique of trying to boil things down is incredibly uh, incredibly important. And uh, it's very moving to me. You know, I think about those conversations I have with the kids all the time before the arguments. And indeed, I think I'm trying to do a kids TV show around the Supreme Court and revival of kind of schoolhouse rock ideas. And right. it's built a little bit around those conversations oh, cool. the night before arguments. Take us inside. You know, you you talk about how, uh, you know, the, the podium is literally eight. I was surprised to see that eight feet away. You're like standing right in front of the chief justice. Take us inside what it feels like, because obviously we don't, you know, cameras don't go inside there. And so as best as you can kind of paint the picture as you're and you still get nervous every time you walk in and you sure. touch John Marshall, the statue of his foot. Just take us yeah. through your rituals and kind of what it feels like inside there. Yeah. So as I say, the night before I've made uh, I, I'm, I'm talking to my kids about the argument. I also make a playlist of stuff I'm going to listen to. Some of it's pump up music, some of it's okay. sentimental music and the like. And I'm listening to it in the car going there. And, you know, the first thing you see about the Supreme Court is the inscription above it, which is equal justice under law in huge letters. And I always look at it. I never stop. I never, I never failed to tear up every time. It's, it's a privilege to be part of this process and to be in that building. Um, I mean, a building that, you know, Louis Brandeis and Thurgood Marshall and, uh, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and people like that have served in. So um, you go in and yes, there's a statue of John Marshall and I rub John Marshall's foot for good luck every time. And then I'm sitting in there waiting for the argument to begin. Now, oral argument at the Supreme Court is only a half hour per side. Back in the old days, it used to be like nine days long, like right. Daniel Webster and like, right. but they've compressed it down to a half hour. You know, it's like um, I married someone who's Jewish. And so we had a, a wedding that was half, <laughs> we had a wedding that was half Jewish and half Hindu. And for the Hindu part, normally it's a three day ceremony. And uh, my wife gave me a half hour. So right. I compressed three days and a half <laughs> well, hour. I mean, we, That's basically we, what a Supreme we know Court who's running. Was. We know who's running the show at home. So thank you. For yeah. That, right? So, um, and so you'd stand up. It's a little, it's quite different now after COVID. So I'll tell you about like my first 45 or so arguments in the pre COVID time. You'd stand up at the podium, you'd be able to write one, you'd have one line down on your legal pad and you'd say it. And then hopefully you'd get another line, but th they'd start throwing questions at you right away. And I average about 60, six zero questions in a half hour oral argument. Wow. So they're just, it's rapid fire. They're throwing questions. So you're really you. not, you're not do, going through this monologue of everything. You up the, you say something and then after that, it's it's back and forth. It's tennis. No monologue yeah. at all. It's yeah. basically just purely like, you know, it's all rapid fire questions. Now in the post COVID era, it's changed a bit because, um, you know, first they made us do it on speaker phones because they're so afraid of cameras in the courtroom. Right. So we had to do it on speaker phones and it'd be unseemly if the justices were all trying to talk over each other. So they went in order of seniority for their questions. And that meant that Justice Thomas, who's very senior, started asking questions, which was great. Um, and now that we're back in the courtroom, uh, they've still basically adopted this idea that Justice Thomas will ask the first question. And so for a long time, I've been thinking, like, how do I use that um, knowledge strategically to our advantage? It's something that hadn't happened in the whole history of the court that you right. knew who was going to ask the first question. So 
I argued this huge case called Moore versus Harper this year. It was about the independent state legislature theory, which is the Republican National Committee's theory, Donald Trump's theory, that state legislatures control federal elections entirely, including to the point where, as you know, Trump says, they can displace the popular vote mm-hmm. and install their own slate of electors. So um, basically, I knew Thomas was going to ask the first question. And I always believed, nobody else on the left believed this, but I always believed it was a winnable case because the original understanding of the Constitution was so squarely in our favor. And so, you know, I ran basically a set play. Justice Thomas asked the first question, and I just said, you know, I answered the question. It didn't matter what the question was. And then I said, Justice Thomas, and arguing before you for 30 years, I've been waiting for this case because this case speaks to your method of interpretation, the original understanding of the Constitution. And here are the four things you need to know about our founders and what they thought about the independent state legislature theory. And then I went through them all. And that allowed me, you know, even in a rapid fire argument to make all these deep substantive points. Did it work for Justice Thomas? Actually, no, I (laughs) lost his vote, um, but I only lost his and one other vote on the independent state legislature theory. The others, uh, you know, six justices voted for us and for the idea that there are checks and balances in our system, which is so important coming into 2024. Do you? It's interesting. We forget. No, we don't forget. These justices are human beings, and they, as much as I'm, they're fair and impartial. They're coming in with their biases, and we know where the court leans right now. Do you sometimes go into a case and okay, no matter what I say, ex judge, he, he, I'm not moving him or her. That, that, that's it. And these are the one or two that are in play. And you know that that. And look, it, it comes down to how fair the court is set up. Just it's just predisposed. Yes and no. So, I mean, certainly I think it's really important as an advocate to always go in trying to understand that and be optimistic and try and figure out a place where you can make a difference. Um, and so, you know, it, 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 you know, the worst advocates are the ones who are like, oh, it's all lost. And, you know, I'm just going to, yeah. you, know, you know, so that I don't think is going to ever get you anywhere. But at the same time, you have to be realistic. And so sometimes you'll get a case and like I had a death penalty case a few years ago. I knew there was no way we could win, but I knew there was a way I could engineer a soft landing so that when we lost, we'd lose in a way that we'd ultimately win later and plant the seeds. So what I'm often doing is trying to figure out, okay, realistically, there's no way the client can win, but could you lose in a way that's not half bad? Um, And uh, and I think that's a deeply underrated part of what our craft is as lawyers. You recently wrote an op-ed about how important uh, TVs in the courtroom would be, particularly in the upcoming uh, federal case. Obviously, that's uh, is it officially against the law at this point, or is just it's just not done? Where so, do we stand on that? Yeah. So first of all, states have different rules. I'm than talking the about federal. federal right. So yeah. So in the federal system, there's a general prohibition against the televising of criminal trials. It's happened in some civil trials. Indeed, when I argued against Donald Trump's Muslim ban. Um, in, in the Court of Appeals, it was carried on live television um, uh, for the world to see. Um, but in the criminal process, there is a general flat prohibition that can be removed by what's called the Judicial Conference, which is a group of judges led by the Chief Justice. And here, I think it should because this, these are the most the January sixth trials are the most important trials in you know our lifetimes and one of the most important in the, in the nation's history and the idea that the american public can't see 
that trial and that we're going to leave it to spin um, is is frightening. And, and so I think what would have you, to happen? How did that how did that mechanism? How would that get triggered? Yeah, it's just a judicial conference vote. They're meeting in September. I would like to see it teed up for that meeting. They can also call a special session in October and November, but they can relax the rule. And we've seen this happen already in the state system. For example, Minnesota has a flat ban on televising criminal trials. I was one of the prosecutors in the George Floyd murder, a special prosecutor for Minnesota, uh, the yeah. state of Minnesota. And uh, ultimately the judge there relaxed that rule and said for the first time in Minnesota history, there's going to be a televised trial. And we were we were very worried about it because we we're worried about the witnesses. And, you know, it was such a fraud environment. But I will tell you that the televising of that trial did so much to contribute to public confidence in the outcome. I mean, before that trial, people were total loggerheads about it. But yeah. you watch that trial, it's hard to come away with any other but yeah. one conclusion. And that's why, you know, we just sentenced the last person two weeks ago, and it was a non-event. This case is now over, and um, and I think Americans accepted the result, and in part because of television. And so Georgia, the January 6th prosecution, would be televised as long as that case stays in state court. Donald Trump's minions are trying to move it to federal court because I think there's no uh, sunlight there. There are no cameras in federal court and they right. much prefer that. You know, they're kind of like vampires and afraid of sunlight. But, um, uh, I, you know, I think that the federal stuff should really be televised. Do you I think, think this that's, is, if you were going to handicap it happening in a conference happening, what, where, where would you put the odds? It, it's hard to know. I mean, obviously, I understand the chief justice's concern about cameras in the U.S. Supreme Court. That's something he's, uh, you know, and his colleagues have been saying for a long time they don't want. At the same time, it does feel like this trial with witnesses and stuff and watching Trump's demeanor in the courtroom is really, really essential in a way that's different than televising Supreme Court proceedings. So I hope that the case is made to the chief justice in that way that, the, you know, you can have one and not the other. How much leeway? Each case is different, obviously, and the judges are all different. But we've seen Trump's early uh, mafia boss uh, preclusion to threat, you know, putting witnesses names out there and, and saying, you know, th threatening justice. How much leeway before the justices say no? And what like what what can they actually will? Is there a chance they would any of them? would actually say one more time, you could spend the night in jail. I mean, what, 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 how heavy will they come down with a club? Yeah, so first of all, this will be up to largely the discretion of the trial judges in each place. Yes. It's not likely to go to the Supreme Court with one asterisk. So basically, you know, Judge Shutkin in D.C., the federal judge presiding over the January 6th case, I think that's where the first place where we will see this. She's already warned Trump in a remarkable warning, um, you know, during his arraignment that he's out on bail. That means you can't intimidate witnesses and the like. And he's already, I think, violated that order. So she now has two choices available to her. She could, or three. One is she can just wait for him to say more stuff, which he undoubtedly will. Mm -hmm. Two, she can call him in and, you know, and basically say, ask for an explanation and say, look, you do this stuff again and you're going to jail. Or number three, she can jail him right away. I, uh, oh, I should say fourth option, and this is the one she's very likely to do, is to, uh, is to move up 
the January 6th trial because she's worried about Trump trying to contaminate the jury pool. So I suspect the fourth one will happen. We'll find out on August 28th whether or not uh, when when the trial will be of the January 6th ones. But I do think she's going to move it up. And I think that's exactly the right reaction. When would you guess the trial date would be? I mean, not a specific date, but around when would you think? uh, I think we're looking at, you know, January of next year, 2024. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, there's no reason that it needs to go longer than that. Trump says, well, you know, the government has investigated me for two and a half years, so I should get two and a half years. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, the system doesn't work that way. Um, and uh, that's just a stupid argument. His better argument is, well, there's lots of documents to go through. I think he said 11 million pages. I mean, most of those are duplicates and mm-hmm. you have computer software to deal with that. But um you know, that kind of document rationale, it was used in the George Floyd murder by the defendants. It was rejected there. And I think it will be rejected here. January is plenty of time for him, uh, he, you know, to to do this. You've had a, you're still having a robust career. What's been your proudest moment where you went, wow, this is cool as shit. This is, I can't believe that happened or I just did that or I heard that or I said that. Was there a moment that kind of gives you more tingles than any other one? I mean, there's so many. I just feel so privileged, you know, to, to you know, have my parents come from another country and to have all of these opportunities. Um, you know, uh, obviously, Moore versus Harper stands up, uh, stands out. Um, it's very recent. And then another case that, um, didn't get any popular attention, but is like so important to me is the case involving gene patents and in particular breast cancers, gene one and two. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something in which basically I was in the federal government and I sought the invalidation of the 20,000 or so patents on the human genome. Um, and BRCA1 and 2 are part of that. Those are genes that if you have in your body, um, then you have a very aggressive um, form of breast cancer that's likely to materialize. And so uh, a company had invented a gene, a test for this. It was just a simple blood test. Um, And it said, if your blood test um, has this following sequence, then you've got the then you've got the mutation and you need to have prophylactic surgery and the like. The test takes like it costs like a dollar, but they were charging six thousand dollars because of patent royalties over it. So I looked at that. I studied it for a long time with the NIH scientists and with a bunch of economists and sought the invalidation of all 20,000 gene patents, which angered a lot of people in the biotech community. And everyone said we would lose the case 9-0. And ultimately, we won at 9-0 in the Supreme Court. And the result is now genomics and personalized genetic medicine is now available to people. This yeah. is becoming well, a reality. So it's really changed a lot of lives. And it's a good illustration of how in the law, there's a lot of stuff that sounds technical, but it has a real deep meaning for humans and um, trying to figure out what those are. It's not the Donald Trump case all the time. It's other stuff yes, that really matters really to people. Important. So let's talk about Quartzsite, uh, monster podcast yours. Tell me, first of all, as a fellow podcast guy, Tell me about what you love about doing a podcast. Let's talk about it. So first of all, I generally don't listen to any podcasts. I'm a total music guy and I love right. music so much. So I don't like my threshold for listening to podcasts, let alone doing one was extremely high. At the same time, right. I feel like there's such a dearth of information about the United States Supreme Court and what it's like and what it's meant over our history. And so the whole idea is to try and bring the Supreme Court alive to Americans. 
So give me some of the recent guests. So John Legend on voting rights, and he's been a real staunch supporter of voting rights and litigation and bringing attention to the issue. Uh, John Mulaney, who doesn't have any direct experience with the Independent Counsel Act, which is the act that gave Ken Starr the powers to investigate Bill Clinton. And the whole question in that episode is, how do you prosecute a high-level executive branch official? And John is just spectacularly brilliant. He read every case, everything, knew all the history backwards and forwards. Uh, well, how did that? How did you come together with it? How, I, like this is not a pairing I would put together. Uh, these are these are sometimes some of my pals. Like John is a okay. pal, and okay. you know uh, John, both Johns, uh, Legend and Mulaney, um, Regina Specter, who comes in on the Muslim ban and refugee ban that Donald Trump enacted. Uh, mm-hmm. She herself was a refugee and a dear friend. So some of those are people like that, um, and then there are other people who I didn't know, like the artist Deborah Cass, um, who's a Warhol sure, um, expert. Sure. Um, and uh-huh. so I've her and Aaron Desner of the band The National talking about copyright and about artificial intelligence and how that's going to upend things when there's like computer-driven work like Drake, the fake Drake album or right. things like that. Right, yeah, that's going to be an issue. When does it drop? It drops every Wednesdays. Uh, uh, this Wednesday, uh, I've got Judd Apatow talking about oh, Citizens Citizens United. I've been trying to book Judd. I can't fucking get him. Good for you, man. You're getting <laughs> some great bookings, you know? <laughs> well, again, a dear friend and someone who's fought for the idea that, you know, corporations shouldn't have unlimited money in our campaigns so he was a natural guest for it. it comes out you know this week as i say and it's a really phenomenal discussion about the boundaries of the first amendment and what the supreme court has done to our democracy that's amazing most recent uh, episode of courtside dropping wednesday depends when you're hearing this wednesday of this week uh courtside with neil cocktail it's a must must listen Neil Cartiel, you are a great American. I so appreciate taking time. It's been a privilege chatting with you, my friend. Oh, keep, keep, thank up the, you so- keep up the good work, man. You're doing Thank you. Work. Thank you. I get. I hope we get to be on TV soon and explore some of this stuff together. Little, little, we'll be in little boxes together. Or or billions. Right. You know, <laughs> there, there's still a couple episodes left. There you go. Have a great day, my friend. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Bye bye.